You're listening to the Ontario College Podcast, devoted to covering issues about Ontario post-secondary education in general and the current negotiations between Ontario College faculty and the College Employer Council in particular. This podcast is devoted to my personal opinions and those of my guests. It does not in any way reflect the opinion of any employer, college, union, union division, bargaining unit, union local, or the CAT academic bargaining team. You still there? Cool. On today's episode, I'll be talking about the events that brought us to our current moment in bargaining as we start work to rule, and I'll be looking at some of the college management's messaging before featuring an interview with J.P. Hornick, chair of the faculty bargaining team. Okay, let's start with an update of current events since the last episode. I believe the last episode was recorded on the cusp of the conciliation process, and we are now several events beyond the other side of that process. Now, the College Employer Council had called for conciliation, which is the process that starts the ball rolling towards legal labor disruption. It's a necessary precondition for the employer to legally lock out faculty or impose unilateral terms and conditions of employment which is what they've done. Similarly, the union can't uh, organize labor action without conciliation and without a strike authorization vote from the union membership. So the first day of conciliation was Thursday, the 18th of November, and it started with the union presenting a new offer. Uh, But the 18th was also pretty much effectively the last day of conciliation as well, because rather than respond to that offer uh, tabled by the union, the management bargaining team instead had the conciliator inform us, us, the faculty bargaining team, uh, that it was requesting a no board report. No board report is filed by the conciliator to the ministry saying that the two sides cannot be brought together and that um, it is a necessary precondition for, uh, as we said, for the CEC to impose terms and conditions, which they did on December 13th, the very first day possible. And that's a habit. They escalated on the first day possible, uh, the first day of conciliation. They asked for a no-board report, and first day, as soon as possible after the no-board report was issued, they announced and imposed terms and conditions of employment. So again, this pattern of very, very rapid escalation on the part of the employer council. Now, in response, the faculty bargaining team, recognizing that the employer was able to impose conditions and terms and conditions unilaterally, the faculty bargaining team had to call a strike authorization vote, and that was held from December 9th to 11th. Um, the strike vote was 59.4% in favor to 40.6% opposed, and those numbers are pretty consistent with the history of strike votes in the CAT academic sector at the colleges since, you know, uh, 70s, 80s. Um, and it's worth noting that the CEC immediately reported the strike vote by saying that roughly 40% of all voters, all eligible voters, had voted to authorize a strike action if necessary. And, at, well, that's actually correct. Uh, many people who were eligible to vote did not. And of everybody who was eligible to vote, 40% 
of the entire list voted to authorize strike action. And by comparison, uh, 27% of all eligible faculty had bought into what the CEC was selling and voted against authorizing a strike action if necessary. So again, these numbers are pretty comparable to what we've seen in previous rounds of bargaining. But one thing that strikes me as significant is that we've never seen this much use of college resources to distribute uh, employer propaganda ever before. Not Certainly not in my recollection. And I, I, I don't think at any time in the history of bargaining have college resources been so shamelessly devoted to spreading propaganda to college faculty to basically turn them against their own bargaining team and to push and propagate management's uh, messages. So that was new. And in the face of that, I'm not surprised particularly that uh, we saw the numbers that we did. Now, two days after that strike vote, as I said, on the very, very first possible date, management imposed terms and conditions. And that's where we're at right now. Management has imposed terms and conditions. They can change them at any time. And I guess the funniest part of their imposition of terms and conditions is that they did not actually provide a list of the terms and conditions until several days later. So it was really completely unclear to the bargaining team and maybe to faculty what terms and conditions we were actually working and living under. So why the imposition? Well, the general message of imposing is to say, we don't need to negotiate. We know what faculty members need better than they do. That's overall the message from the employer when they walk away from negotiations and when they impose. They say it's no longer about negotiation. It's no longer about bargaining. It's no longer about the two sides coming to an agreement. It's about us being able to do whatever we want to do. And the general message is that we know what faculty members need better than they do. By way of example, Graham Lloyd, CEO of the College Employer Council, was quoted in news articles. He says, we believe that employees have waited long enough to receive wage increases and benefit enhancements. Introducing these improvements does not prohibit further negotiation. We will be introducing the terms and conditions as promised last week. So it's up to management to decide when faculty need changes and what changes they need. It's not up to faculty to decide that. The gist of that, the implicit message is, these things are so important that we need to impose them upon faculty, even if that means bypassing faculty's own elected bargaining team. Now, the funny thing about their argument that these changes are so, so important is that back in February, they reached out to Smokey Thomas of OPSU, OPSU president, again, ignoring faculty's elected bargaining team, and they offered an extension agreement with no changes just the pay increase of 1%, but nothing else. And now they're saying these things are so important that they must be imposed 
over the objections of the faculty bargaining team and against the expressed will of faculty who have in fact authorized a strike authorization vote in order to continue the effort towards productive negotiations at the table and these changes being made through agreement having both sides bargain the issues that are most important to faculty which the employer currently is not doing. And I want to suggest that there is a shocking level of paternalism in this act of imposition and in couching it in the language of delivering faculty's needs, even if they don't realize they need it, even if we're doing it in a way that is counter to what faculty communicate they want, counter to the way that faculty have determined that it should happen through an elected bargaining team with elected demands and counter to many and almost all of the major issues that faculty have indicated are their primary issues around bargaining, such as workload, for example. There's nothing in the imposed terms and conditions that indicates any improvements to workload. And Speaking of paternalism, I guess this is the moment when I can mention that my own employer emailed anti-union propaganda to members on, let's see, now over the course of bargaining July 13th, August 9th, August 18th, September 20th, September 22nd, September 27th, um, October 28th, November 1st, November 11th, November 18th, November 24th, November 25th, November 26th, December 6th, December 7th, December 9th, and December 10th. Now, I ask you to consider, is it a bigger problem that they chose to spend taxpayer dollars in order to advocate a point of view and try to persuade employees to disregard their own rights and their own bargaining team and their own demands that had been selected by faculty over the course of hundreds of labor hours and work hours, participation hours at local demand set meetings and final demand set meetings. Or is it a bigger problem that they chose to spend tuition dollars to do that? That they chose to use the students' tuition money in order to weaponize the college's communication systems for the sole purpose of making faculty's democratically elected bargaining team look bad and making faculty's own voted-on demands look unreasonable? Now, this is the kind of union busting that we see in the States. This is called captive audience meetings. It's the online equivalent, the emailed equivalent of captive audience meetings. And we see that in Walmart. We see that in Amazon. We see that in McDonald's. We see that in union busting employers. And I'm going to quote uh, from Professor Sarah Slynn and she works at Osgood Law School, and she's got an article called Captive Audience Meetings and Forced Listening, Lessons for Canada from the American Experience, because it is worth remembering this is an American labor relations phenomenon that the College Employer Council is importing into our own workplaces. 
And she says, the problem of whether and how to restrict employers' captive audience communication during union organizing is of renewed relevance in Canada. Captive meetings are a long-standing feature of American labor relations. Now, these messages are showing up in your inboxes. Do you feel that you have the power to disregard them? Do you feel that you have the power to not read things that are coming from management? Do you have the even conceivable ability not to read what's put in the subject lines, what messages are communicated there? And this brings me to a quotation from an article by another York University professor, David Dury, and he's writing in the Hastings Law Journal. And he says, employer captive audience meetings are a rare example in which people in a democratic society are forced to listen to opinions with which they may strongly disagree. Employees are not chained to a post, but they are nevertheless economically compelled to listen to their employer's anti-union opinions. The uniqueness of being compelled to listen makes the captive audience meeting a powerful signaling device through which the message of economic vulnerability is transmitted to employees. The medium is its own message, and it should be regulated as such. Well, what does that mean? It means that whatever the propaganda message that your college management chooses to deploy the college communication systems to impose upon you, whatever that email happens to say, whatever happens to be maybe in that video that you're invited to click on and watch, and whatever the warm and fuzzy words they happen to use, like mutual commitment or respectful negotiations, the real message of the emails is this. We can force you to listen. You are subservient to us, and you do not have the right to not listen to whatever we want to tell you. You do not have the right to not look at our messages. You do not have the right to disregard what we want to say. You are subservient to us. Remember your place and remember your place when you're considering work action. That's the message. That's at the heart of the college's efforts to force you to read anti-union propaganda every week in your inbox. And it's at the heart of the College Employer Council's bargaining team's repeated promises that it will never negotiate faculty priorities. On August 12th, College Employer Council Chair Lori Rancourt says, quote, maintaining these demands is not a path to a negotiated settlement. A strike over these proposals will not be ended by an agreement which contains any of these demands. And again on September 10th, quote, we want to be very clear with everyone so there is no misunderstanding. Continued discussion and a strike mandate on these particular issues will not result in an agreement. What's the message? We have the power. You, faculty, do not. We, the employer, are strong. You, faculty, are weak. We do not need to listen to you, but you do need to listen to us. We can force you 
to do that. We will give you what we choose, when we choose, how we choose. That's the message of imposition of terms and conditions. You, faculty, will never get what you claim to need, and you should remember your place. You will get what we, the employer, choose to give you. And this is our chance to say, we do know our place. Our place is at the negotiating table and, if necessary, on the picket line. All 15,207 of us, we are equals in negotiations and we expect to be treated there as equals, not as inferiors. We are the people who actually do what the colleges do. Teach. Provide academic leadership and support to help students function effectively as learners. We have seen the employer's vision for the college system. We've seen the government's vision for the college system. It's a vision of de-skilling and privatization and precarious labor. It's a vision that views faculty as content providers rather than teachers and views students as funding units more than as learners. It is not a responsible vision, and this has been starkly underscored by the province of Ontario's own Auditor General, whose report recently was summarized in a Toronto Star headline that reads, Ontario gets a failing grade on colleges and international students. And there's one last detail about the vision of how the colleges should be run. On the backs of unrecognized, unrecorded, and unpaid labor. By professors, by coordinators, by counselors, and absolutely shamefully by exploited partial load faculty who don't get an extra penny if their classes need twice as much time to be prepared or if they have to grade the work of twice as many students or more. They can spend twice as much time and get no additional pay. Their work is not paid. It is not recorded. It doesn't count. And that's where work to rule comes in. If the College Employer Council wants to say that 5.4 minutes per week is perfectly adequate to grade student essays and communication classes, or that a three-hour online class can be prepared in one hour and 48 minutes, or if a manager feels that it's perfectly fine to give the absolute minimum of four hours per week to take care of all student needs out of class, including office hours and email, well, this is our chance to let them live with the consequences of those decisions. Coming up, I have an interview with J.P. Hornick, chair of the faculty bargaining team. It was recorded on Monday, December 13th, following the successful strike vote and prior to the start of Work to Rule. got off the phone uh, with a media interview. Who was, uh, who were who you talking to? Uh, actually, I was responding to uh, one of the student reporters from the dialogue, the George Brown student newspaper. And what were the kinds of questions that the, uh, that the, the student newspaper was asking? 
you know, the student newspapers tend to be concentrating um, on sort of how did we get here? What do you think about the results of the strike vote? Um, you know, what does this mean for students is really the big question that they uh, they come to. And I think that a lot of the media has that same focus, like what is this going to mean for students and what does work to rule mean? Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of time spent in, right now for me talking people through. Uh, listen, you know, work to rule is designed explicitly to put pressure where it belongs, which is on the administration to demonstrate the work that faculty actually do that's not captured. And what happens when you slow that down, right? Or what happens when you actually just do the work that you're assigned? Um, it really changes what an administrator is responsible for. But also that the colleges at any point, uh, you know, can exercise their ability to direct their team and put this into binding interest arbitration right there is if they're if they're refusing to negotiate faculty's issues and we can't move anymore i mean we've pared down from july until now to the most basic uh, you know forms that we really can you were we're saying then like take it into interest arbitration and that seems to you know People can wrap their heads around that, and I'm not sure they have a good answer for it, the CEC. It's not clear to me what a good answer is, right? So I guess my question would be, do you think that the college's reliance on unrecognized, unattributed, uncompensated, unacknowledged labor on the part of faculty and support staff as well. Do you think that that's new, newer to the system or do you think that's been around the whole time and it's just never come up as a major feature around, around our, our negotiations and our labor actions? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily new in the system. I mean, when you look at the history of bargaining uh, for both support and faculty, you know, workload becomes is the number one top issue across the board, right? And that does suggest that there is an ongoing problem with not recognizing the actual work that is required to, you know, support students and run a college. That said, I think that in the past few years that the intensification and maximization of work has brought it, uh, you know, the pandemic kind of pushed it over the edge, right? Like yeah, that, there that's, was, my, that's my feeling, like, yeah. like everything was set up to be maxed out and we were seeing student numbers that would bring you up to like 43.98 hours on the SWIFT, right? Yeah. And right as that had happened, like within about a year or two, you know, a year and a half of that happening, I won't say system-wide, but at several different colleges, then the pandemic hit and nothing else in that system of workload assignment did flex or did change to it. Well, you have no room to flex. I mean, this is basic, like, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if it's physics, but certainly you don't run any system to its max at all times, you know, you burn it out, right? If you run a machine at its max capacity for its entire lifespan, its lifespan is going to be very short, right? If you run it within a reasonable, you know, uh, workload, then it actually continues on. And when there's an emergency, you're able to meet that emergency. And when there's a natural dip, it, you know, you get extra time for recovery. But there seems what I think has happened has been this overwhelming belief that and it's not just faculty this is support staff too that they have this attitude that we're all just lazy so-and-sos lying about you know if we are not work to our maximum we'll just lay about on a beach somewhere right 
And, you know, I, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. Most people, I've rarely met faculty who are just like phoning it in. You know, when people phone it in, when they're so maxed out, they have nothing left, right? That is the number one sign of burnout is that you, you, you can't really care about your job because you have nothing left to give. So the irony of maxing people out is it creates the opposite effect of what's intended, right? And, you know, but it, it is also possible in any condition in which you believe you have surplus workers. Uh, and so you can actually burn people out. And we recognize now today that we're implementing processes that require workers, not this isn't just an education to like, you know, it's give it your all, all the time. And ironically, at the same time, you know, there's this burgeoning industry of self-care, making it an individual responsibility for the burnout that is actually a symptom of systemic exploitation. <laughs> so, you know, they call it burnout is really exploitation, right? And, you know, but when it's an individual problem rather than a collective one, it's very hard to see that. So, we're now two days past getting news of a successful strike vote mandate from the membership. Uh, 59% voted in favor, 59.4, I think it was. Um, what do you think were the factors that led to that number? What, you know, that led to the fact that we did get the successful mandate in the first place, which I don't think everybody thought we would get, uh, the fact that it wasn't higher. So what, what do you think were the factors that put it right about where we saw it? Yeah, I mean, the extraordinary organizing efforts on the part of the locals to reach out and talk to people and find out what they're concerned about and, you know, talk to them about why we're asking for them to authorize a strike uh, if uh, if necessary, right? I think that that actually, you know, we have 15,000 members. That's, you know, 3,000 more than we had in 2017. And we had over two thirds of them come out to vote. That in and of itself is an amazing accomplishment that we should all celebrate, right? Like that faculty engage and the engagement that we saw along the way, you know, the, the team did 17 GMMs in two weeks or two and a half weeks. You know, we did two province-wide organizing meetings that had, what, over 2,500 people show up kind of thing. Like that, those are victories we can, we should draw on because it's member engagement and that's what needs to happen. The vote itself, I mean, I think it's, there's a number of factors in play. It's the first time ever we've engaged in an online strike vote ever uh, in our system. We are in the midst of a pandemic that is resurging right now. Right. So and at the end of a semester that's at the end of a difficult 18 months that have resulted, people are, are worried. You know, nobody wants labor like nobody wants to go on strike in the midst of a pandemic with all the like, economic uncertainty. People's partners have lost jobs like there is, a, you know, I get that. Right. And so and you have an employer who has for the first time also engaged in a really aggressive campaign of fear mongering and misrepresentation of, you know, faculty demands uh, 100% and directly to faculty through their college email. It's like, uh, I think we were talking about this, Jonathan, it's like the, um, the tactics that companies like Amazon or Home Depot use where they just bring the workers in, make them sit through anti-union rhetoric and then are like, go ahead, have your vote now. Right. So, you know, this is what the employer council has been doing and what the college presidents have been tacitly agreeing to and saying, this is fine. Go ahead. Scare the hell out of people. 
what I want. Can I just say one more thing? Because I know yeah. I'm dabbling on. Yeah. Is that I think it scares the heck out of the college presidents, though, or it should, that nearly 60% of their people were strong enough to stand up and say, you know what, labor relations aren't great here. We're not happy with our working conditions. We don't like what you're doing as an employer. And imposing terms and conditions is not gonna lower that number, hey? So let's start quickly talking about imposing terms and conditions. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're in a in a state of imposed terms and conditions? Does that mean that we now have to work 60 hours a week, that we can now work 20 hours a week? What's uh, what, what does it mean now that we find ourselves in that position? Well, I mean, ironically, we said to the College of Employer Council, why don't we just extend the current terms and conditions until at least next semester to give us a chance to negotiate or, you know, talk about how we send it to binding interest arbitration and get this resolved without any disruption. Imposition is a form of labor disruption, period. It is an employer saying to its workers, these are the, you're, you're going to take our offer one way or another, whether you like it or not. Or there quit. is no consent, right? They like, get yeah, or quit, right? That's or face question. discipline. But when you have the end of the collective agreement was September 30th, the collective agreement itself was frozen until the end of the conciliation. And, you know, what it meant was that the employer can then at will uh, change the terms and conditions. So all of our terms and conditions are assumed to continue, except that which has been explicitly changed by the employer. So we haven't, it's not like we're without SWIFTs or, you know, but it does mean that they're vulnerable. Right. The employer can at any point come in and say, we don't like this anymore. It's a bit of a problem for us. So we're just going to adjust this. They're saying they're only going to do things that, you know, you know, positively affect faculty in some way. But we already see that's not true. Right. So, you know, the counselor class definition, great that it's updated, but, you know, they require a trade off on it that they've imposed now that allows them to outsource the work more easily. Right. I mean, they were already in the process of privatizing counseling services and outside. You know, this is why contracting out language is so important. But this allows it this builds in a new lower threshold in the collective agreement. And so I think it's important to know that, you know, the employer's terms can be changed at any time. They can do anything they want. And that the only recourse to that is to stand together and fight back against it, right? And so work to rule gives us some creativity in being able to respond to those changes. But if they push it too far and faculty start to, you know, feel that, then we are going to need to escalate those actions. But, you know, for now, hopefully, hopefully the college presidents will realize they're the ones that have to work with us every day back at home. So we've been organizing uh, for the strike authorization vote, and uh, we've all been reading uh, a fair drumbeat of communications from our college presidents and the college, their, their bargaining agents, the College Employer Council, that uh, you know, as soon as there's a strike vote, we're going to be going on strike. Uh, we can go on strike five days after the vote. Um, so, uh, JP, um, are we going on strike in three days from now? No. No, we're not going on strike in three days from now. I mean, unless the employer does something, you know, <laughs> let me just say that strikes are not caused <laughs> by strike votes and they're not take undertaken by workers who are feeling okay. Strikes are undertaken when people have absolutely zero other recourse in order to affect the changes they need in their workplaces. So 
we have said repeatedly to the employer, to students, to our faculty, we are not going to strike at the end of the semester, right? We're going to get through this holiday period. The work to rule that will be started is going to start with building pressure on the administrators, right? And we don't want to telegraph too much of that from, you know, in, in public forum, but like, you know, that that's where our efforts are going to concentrate initially. You know, there's also an element of moral suasion to be undertaken, right? To make sure that everybody understands we do what we say we're going to do and we don't do what we say we're not going to do, right? Uh, and, you know, building that sense of trust and integrity. Th there's no way. The, the colleges were at the end of the semester. It's exam week. Hopefully, uh, the colleges and the College Employer Council who are not on the front lines at all, um, you know, understand that any kind of draconian labor action is uh, on their end is going to result on, you know, uh, an opposing force. But nobody wants this kind of stress right at the end of a semester, right before a holiday break, right at the end of 18 months of like people working all flat out in order to try and support students who are in the system. I, you know, so let's hope, but we, from our end, no, we're not striking over uh, in three days. So um, you've talked about work to rule. So what do you think that work to rule would look like for counselors and librarians and partial load faculty? That's a question that we field a lot. And what, so if, if, you know, any counselors or librarians or partial load faculty members are, are listening, what should they be thinking about in terms of work to rule? Yeah, so let's just say this. We're undertaking an, an extensive process of consultation and direction and back and forth to make sure that anything that comes out as part of the list of struck work is something that does not increase the vulnerability of already vulnerable members, such as contract faculty, partial load faculty, that takes into account the restrictions and the professional obligations of counselors in particular and librarians. You know, and the thing to remember is that all three of those groups are small and they are also targeted for change. You know, one of the things that, the, that, that they have in common is that none of them have a standard workload formula or any sort of guarantees that provide a check on how much they can be exploited in their workloads. And so there is only... Um, uh, so much that you can accomplish within there. And so absolutely, like, is the largest burden of this, you know, somewhat going to be on professors and instructors who are full-time? I, I think we can safely assume that. But there are um, incredible amounts of solidarity actions that partial loan members can take. There are also creative things we can do to try and capture some of that work and demonstrate what's actually happening on the ground. And the same is true for counselors and librarians. In case of counselors and librarians, there is a 35 hour a week cap on their workloads. There's things like professional development time. There's all kinds of other, you know, creative things that we can look at. Uh, and for partial loads, some of it is also about your, the comfort and vulnerability of the individual, right? So there'll be many opportunities to demonstrate solidarity and to take actions and that those will be in keeping with the, you know, safety and conditions that various groups of faculty work under. It's almost like unions are committed to protecting their members. It's kind of like a thing, hey? <laughs> 
So my last question, it's a, it's a bit of a left field question, but when you think about where we're at right now in our particular individual struggle, which is a pretty big struggle, 24 colleges, 16,000 employees all across the province, you know, uh, how do you relate it in your own mind to either sort of the larger historical struggle or to the, the current struggle going on in different industries in different places? What, what do you find yourself connecting this struggle to most often? I mean, I think that for me, on a deeply personal level, the struggle of one worker is the struggle of all workers, right? Like, and so to separate ourselves out from the larger, you know, uh, history of worker organizing and activism, um, to separate ourselves out now from, you know, as if we are somehow apart from the gig economy or apart from the conditions that are being brought to bear, the things that were you know, focused on in terms of maximization of workload, in terms of increasing precarity, in terms of the way the gig economy is creeped in, privatization that, you know, and, and you know, its, its impact, which is eroding quality within public systems, right, and in order to, you know, kind of starve the beast and make private uh, systems look, you know, ooh, so much more attractive, as we can see from the 407, doesn't work. Um, but the, the notion that we are somehow disconnected from these larger things is the same logic that defeats workers every time. It's, it's the same as saying like, well, we, we shouldn't worry about counselors and librarians because they're only a tiny percentage or don't worry about apprentices because they're only like 12% of our workers. Like that is the beginning of the end for all workers. We have to remember like, you know, there was, it's not, uh, it's a fairly recent phenomena that people sell their time and knowledge for a wage, Right. Uh, and that is rooted in a basis of an economic system that, you know, asks us to sort of be beholden to uh, a power structure of having one person over another. And those aren't the only structures that are available in the world. And it's not like in our bargaining, we're like overthrow capitalism right now. Uh, we're actually looking at this as, you know, particularly in the colleges, we have you know, in our, our recent study, like our, our folks are showing that they're like twice the Canadian average of workplace stress. But what that means is that there's a pretty high average of workplace stress for Canadian workers, right? And so, you know, what are the things that unite us? It's that what's happening in work isn't working for people anymore. Right. It's it's that people are not valued for what they contribute, but are seen as, you know, commodities to be exchanged or widgets to be exploited or economic units to be incorporated into some larger system of metrics. We have lost the notion of humanity in work. And I think that it is to forget that as fact that we are part of that as faculty would be to our own detriment. And that of our students as well, I would think. Oh, what we've taught is an entire generation of students to expect less, right? That they should expect less from public education, that they should expect less. And I don't mean this in the sense of entitlement. I mean, like the students that we teach on average our students who are coming from like, you know, often pretty disadvantaged situations, right? And 
when you start to two-tier education, right? And you know, universities should have more because all the colleges do is this, you're already buying into this mentality that, you know, uh, somehow the trades are less valuable than uh, a BA, right? When both are required in order to run a balanced and good society that actually is able to provide for the members of it, right? So that's the thing is that, you know, uh, I don't want to, when you start two-tiering anything, you end up in a position of, you know, uh, somehow some are better than others and therefore deserve more when that's the wrong question to be asking, right? All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. JP <laughs> Hornick, chair of the bargaining team. Thank you very much, JP. Thanks, Jonathan. I'd like to thank J.P. Hornick for letting me record that interview, despite both of us being seriously exhausted after the strike vote. Now, I said I'd attach the work-to-rule protocol in the show notes, and I don't want to belabor them here, but there's one point in there that I do want to highlight. Our collective agreement recognizes a holiday period from December 25th to January 1st. I urge you to take those days to yourself. Don't prepare January classes, don't do complimentary tasks, don't check your work email, but do make sure that your union has access to your personal email. Enjoy a holiday. We have all of us earned one. Have a terrific break and feel free to reach out to me in the meantime. The Ontario College Podcast is written and produced by me, Dr. Jonathan Singer. The theme music has come from the album A Dirt Road in a Dream by award-winning songwriter Nathan Brumley and is used with his very kind permission. If you're interested in learning more about the bargaining process, you can check out the page for the CAT Academic Division at www.collegefaculty.org. You can also catch my occasional snark on Twitter at ONCollegeProf, and I have been known to write longer pieces at www.collegeprof.ca. You can also email me with questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, or cease and desist orders at ontariocollegeprof at yahoo.com. Lastly, this podcast is entirely self-funded. No taxpayer dollars, tuition dollars, or union dues go towards it. If you'd like to help offset the costs, please feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ontariocollegepodcast. Once again, if you missed it at the start, this podcast contains only my own views and those of my guests. Thank you both for listening. <laughs> I even managed to eat some cookies. Woohoo! This loaf is mine. I'm also like huge fan of caraway rye, right? And and on that, it's going to sound disgusting because everybody, it is my childhood sandwich that my grandmother used to make me was um, uh, peanut butter, sharp, sharp old cheddar cheese and tomato on caraway rye. It is delicious.